Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcast, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Opus Private Clients Wellstyle Podcast with Yvonne Watanabe. Yvonne, how are you? I'm great, Eric. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. It is a beautiful day. It's going to be hot, but, uh, you know, hot is good. I'm not looking forward to winter, so let's keep summer as long as we can. Uh, well, I guess, does winter kill corona? <laughs> I've heard that. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but anyway, I, I know that's, that's part of what we're talking about today. Not winter, but uh, uh, the kind of the pandemic and what's going on. And you brought on a special guest, and that's Josh Karen, correct? Yeah, we're really excited to have Josh Karen on, recently uh, promoted VP of Legislative Affairs at AALU and Gamma, so, uh, and nice. a good friend of mine, so I'm, I'm psyched to have him on the podcast today. Fantastic. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Guys, thanks for having me, though. I got to admit, I am a winter person, though, so <laughs> being in Washington, D.C., it's been like 90-plus and miserable for pretty much the last two months, so I will take a little winter coming. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. It's going to be 96 here, and yeah, I, I think a little cool down would be nice. Uh, I just don't like the ice. So, anywho, awesome. <laughs> awesome, Yvonne, awesome. what are we talking about today? So, I wanted to bring Josh on. As I mentioned, Josh is a VP of Legislative Affairs at ALU and Gamma, and given the current landscape of what's going on uh, on the Hill, given the upcoming elections and some of the questions that our clients have been having over the last couple of months, sort of forward thinking and forward looking, thought Josh would be the perfect person to come on. Tell us a little bit about what's going on again on the Hill and what's what, what kind of conversations are, are being had and then maybe how to think about things going forward. So I'm excited to have Josh on, great friend, really wonderful asset for us as an organization. So Josh, as we kick it off, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself besides being an amazing Celtics fan, which I love, kind of fill the audience in on, on a little bit about you. Yeah, of course. Uh, happy to do so. And, and thanks again for having me on. So from Massachusetts originally, hence the, uh, hence the diehard Celtics nature. Good to see us doing well. I've been in D.C. I've been a political person really my whole entire life. I've been in D.C. for about seven years now, spent the whole time with my organization kind of a, a campaign person before then, did a lot of different races across the country over the last handful of years prior to my time at AOU Gamma. Like I said, I've been here about seven years now in the city. Uh, me and my wife are actually expecting our first child this fall. Really, really excited about that. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, another interesting wrinkle to the COVID reality that we all find ourselves in, <laughs> but it, it's an exciting time for me. It's an exciting time for the organization and just see how the rest of the year plays out. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about ALU Gamma for the folks that aren't familiar? Yeah, of course. So we are a trade association that represents what we call financial security professionals, people like Ivan, who are the folks who sit down at a table across the table from an individual, a family, maybe as a business owner, 
and says, all right, what do you want to achieve in your financial life and how can I help you do that? But obviously what makes you guys special is starting from that, you know, risk protection sort of mantra. How do we protect what you earn so far? How do we protect the people that rely on you, either your family members, or your employees, and how do we help you build your financial life in the way that's going to benefit the most amount of people and well into your retirement? So our trade association represents great folks like that. Um, I'm very privileged to be able to do so. And we've been around a little over 50 plus years now. There's about 6,000 members all across the country, every state and every district. So just a really fantastic organization that makes sure that your guys' voice and your client's voice, really, really importantly, is connected to legislators as they're making the policies that will oversee your business and you know all your clients' businesses and personal lives. So that's a really great part of the organization. Yeah, for sure. And and as the VP of Legislative Affairs now, what's what's your role? Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days and, and what's going on there. So I say this all the time. There are 535 members of Congress. They all come from extremely different backgrounds, whether or not there's somebody that was a lawyer or a teacher or a firefighter or a veteran, uh, maybe somebody that served, you know, as a mayor or something like that. But they all come from very uh, broad, different backgrounds. And what that translates to is once they get to D.C. and they get elected to Congress, they have to be an expert in everything. And they get their days are just completely packed trying to figure out, all right, how can I be an expert on foreign policy? How can I be an expert on the economy? How can I be an expert on healthcare? And you kind of go down the list. It's daunting. It's overwhelming. And no one individual can do that. And so really, uh, folks in Congress rely on their staffs and they rely on companies and organizations and trade associations and especially individuals to fill in the knowledge gap for them, to let them know you're a subject matter on X, fill me in on that because I am not. And I want to make sure that I'm making the right policies for my constituents. So my role really at the organization is to making sure that our members have the opportunity to share their stories, share their experience with members of Congress, uh, but also that they know that they've got somebody that they can go to and say, hey, I got a question on this policy. It's in the realm that you guys care about. It's tied to life insurance. It's tied to tax policy. It's tied to a retirement policy. Give me the skinny. Let me know what I should know. Let me know what you're hearing from uh, the folks on the ground, the practitioners who are doing this every day so that they can make the right judgments. And so that's really my role is to just connect the people who have the information with the people that need the information. Yeah. And I know that you're new to this particular role, but obviously not new to the Hill or AALU and, and have been a, a tremendous resource for us in communicating some of the challenges that our clients are having and uh, us as advisors, what, we're, what, what challenges we're facing and making sure that you're fighting for us to, to advocate for our clients. So we, we certainly appreciate it. As we're coming off last week's DNC and then this week, the Republican convention, Tell us a little bit about sort of the state of play in Congress. Like, what's going on? What are the conversations that are being debated? What's on the Hill right now? What's going on on the Hill? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a strange time, for sure, and a time that really doesn't have a parallel to at least any time that I can remember. Being an election year, normally at this time, you know, we find ourselves here at the end of August, 
members of Congress are usually on their uh, in-district work period, so they're back in the districts meeting with constituents, campaigning, getting ready for this kind of final push here uh, up until the election in, uh, in November. So usually we are through the conventions by now. We are firmly in the August in-district work period. And then, you know, they'll come back for uh, whatever legislating they need to do and then usually break sometime in October to get back on the campaign trail uh, prior to November. And so COVID, like everything else, uh, has upended it. And they have been working diligently over the last handful of months here uh, since this thing really began to try to figure out, all right, what does the country need? How do we move it forward? And that's a big challenge, and there's a lot of diverging opinions about what that means and what the federal government should be doing right now. And so at the moment, as you kind of take a step back, COVID really started coming down the pike here, really became uh, widespread in the country right around the middle of March. And very honestly, the country has been kind of struggling and it's footing a little bit to get a handle on the virus and, you know, also to kind of manage the corresponding health and economic crisis that it really has created. Early on in the pandemic, the the Congress and the administration were able to come together pretty quickly and pretty decisively to provide some federal money, some stimulus and relief to individuals and families. You know, those uh, first three COVID packages totaled a little over $3 trillion, pumped a lot of liquidity and economic aid into the marketplace into the country, into the economy, in addition to what the Fed has been doing. And a lot of those packages were widely and appropriately so, I think, credited with stemming some of the worst bleeding. I mean, we've seen a lot of folks who are really, really struggling. Uh, A lot of folks who unfortunately have lost their jobs, you know, unfortunately, obviously goes without saying the human impact in terms of the number of folks that have contracted the disease. And unfortunately, you know, those uh, large number of folks, I think a little over 170,000 as of today uh, that have lost their lives. But the packages that Congress were able to put forward were able to stem some of that economic bleeding by injecting a lot of that liquidity. And so what we've kind of seen here is that aid, when it was originally passed and distributed back in March, was kind of meant and was designed to, you know, freeze the economy in place effectively, starting in March with the notion that by June, July, by the time the summer hit, the virus would be under control. People could go back to their regular lives um, and the economy would keep humming. But that really hasn't been how it's played out. And as the virus has continued to be pretty uh, pretty strong, pretty rampant across the country here, a lot of that initial aid has begun to run out. And so what Congress is really find, has found is they are kind of fundamentally deadlocked at the moment. Uh, they've been negotiating a package to provide a little bit more stimulus and aid. shouldn't say a little bit when I'm talking about trillions of dollars here, but to provide some more aid to individuals and businesses, whether it's you know increased uh, unemployment insurance, individual economic stimulus checks, uh, putting more money into the PPP program, SBA loans, uh, and employee retention tax credits, trying to be really creative about uh, spending money and putting money into the economy where it's needed. But Congress is fundamentally deadlocked at the moment and has been as they've been trying to figure out what that package looks like. Uh, House of Representatives passed what was called the HEROES Act, uh, shoot, probably going on a little over three months now. That was a roughly $3.4 trillion package, had a lot of money in there for some of those priorities that just hit, but also direct money to state and local governments to kind of help them fill up some of their budget shortfalls. And also money for testing, money for hospitals, money for PPE. And so really large bill 
the Republicans, you know, in the Senate were pretty. Uh, it was a tough pill to to swallow, seeing three point four trillion uh, in addition to the three trillion that was already put on the comp- or the uh, the country's credit card, and so there was a little reticence. Republicans have come to the notion, very much so including the administration, that something needs to be done. The question is how much um, and right. what. So it's, it's really the scope that they're debating now. So it's the scope of the package or there be, you know, the, is it the dollar amount or is it a, or is it mainly a conversation of where the dollars are going that's holding up the, the legislation? Very honestly, it's a mixture. So the thing that's tricky here is you're triangulating three different groups all that have very disparate interest here. In the Democratic side, they're pretty uh, pretty unified. They want to see as much money as possible. They want to see uh, money to for unemployment insurance. They want to see money for state and local support. They want to see uh, direct uh, individual uh, stimulus checks go out. So there's a, they've got really good consensus on their side about what they're looking for. Republicans, it's a little bit more of a balancing act. You've got the administration. Currently, uh, the negotiations are being led by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And on their side, they're looking for money in the economy as well. They're actually probably reasonably closer in terms of what they ultimately want, closer to Democrats. Because, you know, the president's in the middle of a re-election campaign, and the more uh, the economy is doing better, the more likely that he is to get re-elected. So he's kind of got, in addition to wanting to make sure that the country is on the right track, um, also has kind of a political sort of motivation here to try to come to an agreement. Senate Republicans are a little bit more divided, uh, because you've got a split in the conference there, because some of the folks who are running for office this year who are in tough races, they're more on board with trying to get to a compromise, get to a deal, figure out you know what the right amount in the right places are, but come to some sort of conclusion here. But there's also a large portion of Senate Republicans who aren't up for re-election this year, or really, really nervous about what the net effect is on the debt going uh, in the long term for more spending here. And so they're a little bit more reticent to spend money. And so if you kind of look at big blocks here, the HEROES Act that was introduced was $3.4 trillion. Senate Republicans initially put forth a package that was around a trillion dollars. There was some amount of overlap in terms of how much and to where those dollars were spent, but in terms of scope, we're really far apart. They've gotten closer to each other. Democrats have offered to kind of scale back their initial proposal to closer to $2 trillion. If you kind of add some of the things up that if you looked at a standalone idea of like, all right, how much is unemployment insurance going to cost? How much is is direct stimulus payments going to cost, et cetera? You kind of get to a number of about $2 trillion. And I think if there is ultimately going to be a package, that's the number. And I think there's, there's probably a deal to be had around liability protections, which is something that uh, Republicans, especially Leader McConnell, have been pushing for. And I think there's probably an agreement there. Now, I should Can you tell us a little bit about the liability, the liability protection that you're talking about? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that uh, Republicans, and especially Leader McConnell, really strong on from the beginning, that as businesses opened back up um, and brought their employees back to work from some of these lockdowns, there had to be some sort of, uh, let's call it roadmap, rule of the road, Uh, that said, all right, if folks do come back and get sick, what's the liability for the business? And there's kind of uh, poles and extremes, right? I mean, you could 
see one side of the argument that says, hey, if an employee goes back and gets sick, that's the business's fault and they can be held liable. There's another kind of poll that says, hey, the business is trying to operate as long as they do some things to kind of make sure that their employees don't get sick. They shouldn't be held liable if somebody does, unfortunately, uh, contract the disease, the virus. And so there's a middle ground there, and, and it's kind of started somewhat to come together, which is, you know, there's going to be some sort of federal guidelines, uh, like the OSHA guidelines that say, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, shields in between workspaces and plenty of hand sanitizer, and you encourage social distancing and all these things. If you follow these guidelines that should, you know, unless you're being incredibly negligent, that should get you some sort of liability protection. There's sort of a, a step that's a little bit further, which is kind of where Republicans started, which said, hey, unless you're incredibly negligent, unless you are completely ignoring those guidelines, then you shouldn't be held liable. So they're getting closer, I think, on that side, but the details are still yet to be fleshed out. Right. I mean, that's something that we're following relatively closely because, you know, as as we were reopening our practice and I'm actually in our office today and have been the last couple of days, um, I just feel comfortable being here. Um, but we have a number of staff that are working from home and, and frankly, they'll probably always be working from home because that's where they feel comfortable until there's uh, either a vaccine or, or the situation changes. But we're able to run a remote practice and there are a lot of other businesses that, that aren't able to do that. So uh, it's definitely going to be uh, I can completely understand, as you said, both sides of the coin, right? As an employee, you want to make sure that they're fully protected and that they're, they're taken care of and that the appropriate measures are being put in place. And then as a business owner, want to get back to, to business as usual as quick as possible and making sure that you're putting some uh, some precautions in place. So I, I, I absolutely get that. We've been talking about trillions of dollars in stimulus package eventually, someone is going to have to pay for those dollars. And so, you know, with the upcoming election and potential tax reform, what do you anticipate happening if the administration gets another four years or if Biden gets elected? Tell me a little bit about what your opinion is on, on where we're headed on that end. Yeah, for sure. Let me just real quick button up the, the COVID stuff. I mean, yeah. they're not negotiating really right now. They're likely to come back. September 7th is Labor Day. They're going to be back in session that week. That's when negotiations really start to pick up. One of the big things to kind of look at here uh, is the federal government actually, uh, its fiscal year ends September 31st. And so Congress needs to pass some sort of spending bill to keep the government open um, so that it doesn't shut down. Uh, there's a possibility that might be the inflection point where whatever negotiated compromise may eventually come together between the administration and Congress could be attached to that uh, continuing resolution, and that might be how they break this impasse. So that's just something for the folks who are listening, and I think that's a, a big inflection point that's kind of coming up here. In terms Great, of no, kind I of thinking ahead, that. yeah, no, of course. In terms of kind of thinking ahead here, the race is at an interesting point right now, and as I kind of look at it, and I'll keep this part reasonably short here, a lot of how you feel about the race right now depends on how what lessons you learned from 2016. As I've kind of been looking at it, and I think a lot of people do, there's two ways to look at it. Either A, uh, President Trump is a political savant, and I think in a lot of ways he is, and he found something that worked. And despite all the sort of punditry and backlash and polling, he connected with a group of folks 
and he was able to go to get a victory back in 2016 because of his individual talents, unique and unique gifts. There's also a sort of another version of this kind of the version of, if I'm being honest, that I'd more ascribe to that the president drew an inside straight. He, when you look at kind of his primary originally, it was a broad field, a lot of folks, nobody really coalesced around any one particular person because of the unique nature of the Republican primary. They do winner take all states. He was able to win states early, not getting reasonably low vote totals, you know, not, you know, hitting a majority or anything, and consolidate a big enough lead that he sort of got a lot of momentum, ran downhill, and was able to go ahead and win the Republican primary to become the nominee. He then got to uh, run against, you know, uh, uh, former Secretary Clinton, who, because of the last name, because of her long service in politics, obviously uh, President Bill Clinton as well, you know, there was a lot of negative connotations. She was a really unpopular candidate. And she got a long uh, primary battle with Bernie Sanders and, and really just is not a great necessarily campaigner. And so as we went into that race, you know, President Trump ended up winning while he lost the electoral, excuse me, the popular vote by three million votes. He won the electoral college. And that's, of course, how we pick our presidents. But he won it by a relatively narrow margin. You're talking about 80,000 votes spread out over three really important states, President or Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And so he won a pretty narrow victory. Uh, he got a lot of things that broke his way, including uh, Jim Comey coming out with the report in the FBI towards the end of the, uh, the election there, which put a huge swing of voters into his camp right as voting was kind of going to the end game there. Right. And so as you kind of look now, four years later, President uh, Weather is who he is. And for the people who love him, that works. Uh, for the people who don't, they don't feel any better about him today than they did four years ago. And so can he pull that inside straight again? Uh, and, I mean, a lot of folks right now will tell you that the narrative is Pre uh, Vice President Biden has had a pretty steady lead since this kind of began and has been up in the polls by a larger margin than uh, uh, Secretary Clinton was. And in places and with specific groups that kind of cut into uh, President Trump's margin of victory a little bit. If this dynamic continues to play out over the next couple of months, I think the driving forces of the election are pretty well known at this point. It's coronavirus, it's the economy, and it's the protest for social justice. If those trends continue, can you see a Vice President Trump victory uh, this fall? Of course I think you can. I think that that, that could easily, if you look back from last uh, election to this one, could you see a scenario in which Trump is, is behind? I think, of course you can. Could you also see a scenario in which uh, the economy gets a little bit better, therapeutics continue to be effective against the virus, and a vaccine comes out, and people start to feel a little bit better as we get towards November here? Uh, for sure, I could definitely see the president, in that instance, closing the gap between him and Vice President Biden and being able to win an electoral college victory again. I think that's definitely in play. So there's a lot there. There's a lot still to kind of come out. And there's some real big sort of what is the effect of mail-in voting on turnout? Because, you know, I mean, funny enough, as we sit here on August 26th, early mail-in voting starts in about three weeks. So this is here now. What's that net effect going to be? Right. 
it's going to be an extremely interesting next couple of months. I, I think going back to my, my previous question, sort of depending on where we land um, and if there's a change in administration, I, I'm hearing a lot of sure. clients and, and, and start to, you know, some foresight happening around if there is a change in administration, we have some major tax reform. Tell me a little bit about what that could potentially look like if, if we do have a you know, change in the administration and what, what, in your opinion, what people can expect from a tax reform perspective. Yeah, of course. So that depends on a number of factors. Obviously, the vice president would have to win election. Uh, Democrats would also have to win control of the Senate. That's going to be a key sort of factor here in whether or not Democrats, should they take control, have the ability to kind of push through some of the things uh, that they're campaigning on. And so that's going to be the starting point. Depending on which races you think are competitive, which races are more likely to go, the rough estimate is that Senate Democrats need to win three Senate races uh, should the current margins hold, in which case uh, Vice President Kamala Harris or then Vice President Kamala Harris would be the deciding factor. I think it's likely that Doug Jones uh, might not survive in Alabama. He's going to have a tough race there. And so that would bring it to four. There's probably about eight races, Arizona, North Carolina, Iowa, Colorado, Maine, Montana, potentially, that are pretty competitive. But there's probably about eight races that are up for grabs this fall. And so Democrats got to win four of those in order to get the margin of victory that they need to take control of the Senate. And the Senate's really where the game then becomes for tax reform. Because if you've got a 50 plus the vice president, if you've got a 51-49 split, they're definitely not going to get to 60 votes to pass thing under regular order. They'd have to pass something under reconciliation, which is a process that has been used a lot in recent years to push for major legislation. It's how Obamacare was passed. It's how President Trump's uh, 2017 tax reform bill was passed. And so there's a lot of dynamics there. Or, of course, there's always the option potentially of Democrats repealing the filibuster. Remains to be seen if they go that way, but that would allow them to pass major legislation with only 51 votes instead of 60. So what would they try to tackle? I think the first step is going to be, depending very honestly, Ivan, on where the coronavirus stands. It's entirely possible that the economy is still struggling, that one of the first six months of a Biden administration could be how do we pass more stimulus? How do we inject more liquidity in the marketplace? That's entirely possible. And I think that's where they would start for sure, depending on what the state of the country is at that point in the state of pandemic. As much as we hope it's gone by then, I think there's a good possibility that it's still with us. So I think that's where they begin. But after that, they've got a pretty ambitious list, uh, Vice President Biden does and, and, and Democrats broadly. And it's not the stuff you kind of hear about more often. It's not the Green New Deal it's not Medicare for all policies that the vice president's generally not uh, been in, in, in support of. What they're going to look at, though, is A, to your earlier question, we just spent a whole bunch of money on coronavirus, on relief spending. They're at three plus trillion dollars now. If they add another two, you're looking at five trillion dollars uh, over the course of a year. That's, that's a crazy amount of spending. The uh, Recovery Act back under President Obama was only about 800 billion, just to give you a sense of the scope between the two things. So how do you pay for some of that? Also, too, if you're going to want to spend money on projects, if you're going to want to uh, spend money on some of the other priorities that you have, where do you come up with that money from? And that's where tax reform comes. So they've got a proposal out there to tax capital gains uh, at death and get rid of step up in basis. 
that's something that raises a significant amount of money for them. And so that's something they might look towards. There's definitely, I think, under that situation, there'd be potentially a change in the estate tax rates and exemptions. Uh, I think that's a place they'll go and look for money. I think there's definitely, it would be likely that they would seek to make changes to the corporate rate. I don't think they've landed on a number from what I've heard so far. Initially, under the uh, Obama's proposals, it was about 28%. Most people thought going into 2017 Taxes and Jobs Act, it would be 25. It ended up at 21. So I think it's reasonable, and you know Biden and his policies have it going up to somewhere between 25 and 28%. And so I think that's where they start, because one of the main drivers in our country right now is populism, and so on both sides. And so I think they'll look to ways like that they, that they can raise some money to then spend on other priorities and cut into this debt a little bit. Yeah, you know, I totally agree. I mean, it, it's a conversation that we're having with almost every client over the last couple of months and, and going forward, trying to look ahead and see what we, what we can anticipate and making sure that our plans are nimble there. And for all of our business owner clients, really trying to figure out, you know, what this new if there is a new stimulus package, how to be able to get the money that they are looking for and, and keep their businesses afloat and, and thriving if possible. As we kind of wrap up here, what are the, the two or three things that you would have people focus on going forward around the conversations being had on, on the Hill? Uh, where would you put your attention? Yeah, I mean, I think main things to focus on will continue to be the COVID legislation. I mean, I think that's just going to be a driving factor over the last couple of months here. I personally believe, in from talking to the people in D.C. who've been through a lot of these, probably more pessimism that a deal gets done at any time before. I also always think it's kind of darker right before the dawn. So I think that will go through, and I think that'll have a measurable effect potentially on some of your clients, either creating more opportunities for them to access liquidity for their business or to be able to take some of these funds. Uh, potentially, it's actually one of the interesting aspects of this recovery is that individual Americans' balance sheets are actually in a lot of ways improving um, because they're not going out to eat as much, because they're not spending as much. Uh, they're taking some of that money and that they're uh, saving, they're paying down debt. And I think they're also looking at mortality in a really different way than they were before. So that is a, another potential impact of that piece of legislation. I think that's the big one to really focus on. And I think the other thing really just this sprint to November 3rd. I mean, I think that's the big part here because so much of what comes next year uh, will be determined at the margins in November. And so who gets reelected, how it goes, I think it'll be other uh, be really key. The other thing that, and this will be the last kind of thing, I think just to kind of focus on for your clients, there's a very important race in a couple of days here. Uh, it's actually September 1st. It's the primary day in Massachusetts. Chairman Neal uh, is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, a really great member, has been in Congress for a, a number of decades now. He's actually facing a, challenge, a primary challenge from the left, and how that race plays out will have a big impact on what the Ways and Means Committee looks like next year, um, which, of course, will have a massive impact on the way Democrats approach tax reform. So uh, that's just something that's happened in five days that I would focus on a little bit, too. Interesting. No, I, I appreciate that insight. It's been super valuable, Josh. I know the audience will get a lot of, uh, of value out of our conversation today. I really appreciate you being on. It's always great to see you or speak to you. And um, again, thanks for all the insight and the time. Of course, guys, more than happy to do it. And please, if anybody, your clients have questions and want to send them my way, I'm, I'm happy to help any way I can. 
We'll do. Uh, Josh, for those who want to reach out to you, uh, how do they get in contact with you? Yeah, best way is my email, uh, C-A-R-O-N at ALU.org. Well, thanks again, Josh. I appreciate it. Be well. Uh, congrats again on uh, on the upcoming baby and uh, and on the promotion. And, and again, thanks for all the fight that you're doing down in, uh, in D.C. for us. Of course, sir. Yvonne and Josh, fantastic podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I know, like Yvonne said, the listening audience is going to get a ton out of this. And I hope they were taking some notes and, and, and paying attention to the things you said to pay attention to. I think it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that they are very educated and can help this process with any election that's happening. So, guys, thank you so much for your time today. And, of course, the last thank you goes to you, audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Opus Private Clients Well-Style Podcast with the team from Opus Private Client, LLC. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the Subscribe Now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Open Private Client LLC, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Opus Private Client, LLC. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, LLC, and opinions stated are their own. Material discussed is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Yvonne Watanabe, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Life Insurance Number 0H44206 2020-107127 expiry 08 of 22.